Welcome to Careers for the Blind. My name is Harrison Hoyes, and I'm losing my sight to retinitis pigmentosa. As my vision continues to get worse, I wanted to have conversations with other blind and visually impaired people to see what advice they may have to offer and keep me motivated and inspired and continuing to strive to do the best that I can in my career. I know I'm not the only person going through this type of situation. So my hope is other people will benefit from hearing these conversations the way that I've been benefiting from them. And in this way, I'll be able to give to others what my guests have been so generous to give to me. In October 2022, I had a conversation with Randy Strunk. Randy lost her sight due to complications of a premature birth, but she didn't let that slow her down. Despite not knowing any blind people in her youth, she did go on to college, worked for several years in vision rehabilitation, but ultimately found her passion in digital accessibility. And today, she is the lead accessibility consultant at Target, where she's been for the last 11 years. Here's my conversation with Randy. I really appreciate you doing this, by the way. Can you tell me a little bit about what your experience has been with vision loss? I was born three months early, and as a result of needing oxygen for lung development, I had retinal detachments. So it's technical name, I believe, is retinopathy of prematurity. So I've been legally blind all my life. I had several surgeries to try to reattach my retinas, but have had really no vision ever in my right eye. And I think at one point it was around 2,400 in my left eye. I could see colors and shapes and recognize people, but never see a lot of detail. Yeah, it's kind of been steady most of my life. I was told it was not a progressive thing. But in 2016, I lost most of the rest of it. Um, I really only have kind of light perception at this point. So it was a little unexpected, but uh, thankfully I had blindness skills to fall back on at that point. Okay. All right. So this, having been affected in you for the majority of your life, right from the mm-hmm. start, were you thinking about when you were going through high school and college? Actually, I, I didn't ask you, did you go to college? I did. Yeah. I got a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Okay. So when you you were in high school and going through college, were you thinking about what type of career you would have beyond college? I think like a lot of people, it changes, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. you you have an idea of maybe what you want to do as a kid and then you kind of realize what that entails. So I didn't really end up you know, as a kid, I thought I, I love sports. So I was like, oh, I'll be a sports journalist. And I was like, um, not really have, the, I don't really have the personality for that. Um, and then in high school, I took a psychology class. And so that's kind of where I, you know, got the idea to do a psychology major. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with that, but I knew, you know, it could apply to a lot of things. I began after that, looking at jobs in vocational rehabilitation counseling, uh, particularly you know blind services departments, I kind of, I think, felt like that's something I could do. I wasn't really sure, you know, I was interested in it and ended up doing that for a while, but you know, realized that that kind of okay. wasn't where my passion right, lies. I guess what uh, what made you want to go that route in the first place? So so out so right out of college, that's what you were doing is is rehabilitation services. Yeah, that, well, that was kind of my first like 
real job, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, career, I guess. You know, I, I was interested in it and I liked helping people. And I felt like the psychology degree uh, a lot of times was one of the prerequisite degrees for that. And I think, to be honest, the other part of it is if I look at the unemployment rate of blind people being so high, you know, I had opportunities through people that I knew and that kind of got me a foot in the door, I guess, for some vocational rehabilitation counselor uh, internship and then a job after that. Easy for me to say. Okay. All right. So it was through networking that got you that first job, Mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Okay. And then you decide, okay, this isn't exactly my passion. What did you move on to from from there? I had had a couple of jobs. The first one, I did an internship at the Nebraska Commission for the Blind. I grew up in Nebraska and then got a job for the state of Hawaii as a vocational rehabilitation counselor. Did that for about a year and a half. And then worked at a post-secondary program at the Texas School for the Blind for about two years. And after that, I decided to go back to school. So I started working on a network administration degree. I'd always been interested in technology. And I ended up, I had moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I live now. And I got asked to do a week of user testing, you know, screen reader testing, accessibility testing for Target. And on their, they were rebuilding a new version of their website and wanted some blind people to do testing. And so I did that and ended up going into the field of digital accessibility after that, which really, you know, kind of combined my interest in technology with sort of the um, having a job, you're still helping people, right? That's still a part of like why digital accessibility is important and being kind of an advocate for that. So those two things combined really led me to the career in digital accessibility and uh, what I still do 11 years later. All right. All right. So that was, that's been a while. Yeah. All right, so, so the, the, the networking, the networking thing didn't work out or you, you, you kind of dropped. Um, it. Yeah, it was, you know, going to school and not getting paid and then, <laughs> and then uh, getting a job in the industry, um, you know, a paycheck and really being able to, at that time, learn some of those skills uh, on the job. Um, I just kind of dropped that in favor of full-time employment. Okay. So the target position was, was, was a paid position that, or that, that testing you were doing. It was, um, it started out, I was only going to be there for a week and I was the only person they brought in who was local to the twin cities where target is headquartered. And so they asked me to come back for another week. And then I ended up being a contract full-time contractor there for about a year before I was hired on um, full-time as a target employee. Okay, cool. So are you, so you're still at target now? I am. Yes. All right. Awesome. You know, Steve Decker. I do. Yes. Yeah. I was just chatting, chatting with him the other day. Oh, I gotta right. see if yeah, I gotta you'll see probably if get a similar story. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess he probably joined um, roughly roughly around that time. I don't know. I don't know exactly. Yeah, but... he was uh, a year, year or two after me. But yeah, we're uh, the veterans on the team at this point. So awesome. Tell me, how did you? How did that come about that you actually got the the opportunity to do to do the testing? It comes back to networking again. They, like I said, Target was looking to do some user testing and. A friend of mine, they were looking for one more person, and they were uh, working with a friend of mine, and she gave them my name, and, you know, I was definitely open to, open to doing that, you know, being a student, any chance uh, you get to make some money is, is a good good opportunity, so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just that network again, networking again was really the key to getting my foot in the door there. All right. Awesome. That's so cool. And, and ultimately, you know, you, you, you show up, you prove Mm -hmm. your worth, you know, you give them some value and before you know it, they want to, you know, continue to keep you on. And exactly. um, Was there an interview process that you had to go through to get that testing position initially? Not for the initial position, you know, I guess kind of prerequisite was, being a competent screen reader user. Um, that's really, you know, I didn't have any formal experience in digital accessibility. I, I was just a user, which is what they were looking for. And then uh, once they had a, a full-time target official position for me, then of course I did have to go through the normal interview process. Okay. What was that like? I mean, I felt pretty good about it because I, you know, I had like a year of experience doing the job that I was being hired for. So that's kind of a unique twist, but um, like anything, you're still, at least for me, you know, interviews are nerve wracking. I don't feel like, you know, it's not something you do every day. Right. So it's still a bit nerve wracking and, and can be intimidating, uh, especially those tell me about a time questions. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think having the advantage of, kind of knowing what they're looking for in that type of position and even having experience to draw on from my, you know, contracting days with target to use as examples for the interview for the full-time position were definitely helpful. Okay. Yeah, of course. Were you largely going to be working with the same people? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They had just were expanding the team. um, And so had, you know, full-time target employee positions and we're trying to hire out to, to build the team. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be hard to, to compete against you if you're coming from an outside, (laughs) outside, uh, you know, interview versus someone that's like, well, I've been here for a year. You, you've seen my work, you know, exactly what I'm capable of. And (laughs) I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Exactly. Uh, a little bit unfair, but that, all right, that's great that, that you know, they brought you on full time. If there's any advice that you may have for somebody, you know, blind, low vision, who's interested in getting into digital accessibility, uh, what, what advice might you have for, for somebody looking to do sure. that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. It's, I think, a really great and growing field. You know, it's definitely not getting any smaller. More and more companies are seeing the value in making their apps, websites, services accessible. So I think 
again, a really a great and growing field. I would say, um, you know, getting to know as much assistive technology as you can is an advantage, you know, knowing different uh, screen readers on, on different operating systems, iOS, Android, Windows, for example. And I, and I think networking is a, a, huge, a huge piece of it. You know, you have LinkedIn and Twitter and a lot of resources where accessibility professionals are talking to each other. They're posting uh, articles that they've written or retweeting, you know, articles from other accessibility professionals. Um, so I really think, you know, reading up on the latest in the industry, it is, you know, something that changes, technology changes all the time. So keeping up with that and taking time to learn about different disabilities, how people with dis different disabilities access resources like apps or websites. Um, those are kind of some of the things I think they're important being familiar with technology and also I think that network networking piece of it is is really huge. Yeah, no, of course. I've I haven't had anyone say mention uh Twitter to for yeah. networking. Uh I and honestly I'm I'm not the best person at networking. So mm -hmm. I don't I, I don't use Twitter. How do you use Twitter to to network? So there's a lot of like I said, there's a lot of people in the industry who you know have twitter accounts that are posting about what they're working on or posting articles and so you know if you read something you like you can reply to them to their post or even send them a direct message if you read an article they they wrote and you have a question um really a, a place to start a conversation right um Obviously, there's, you know, conferences and such, but those aren't always cheap, <laughs> you know, especially for mm -hmm. students or people trying to break into the industry. Um, so I think being able, I think Twitter is a, a unique place because you're able to kind of have a conversation with someone, um, you know, that you've not met before and, and interact with them in, okay. in yeah, that no, way. That's interesting. I just, I don't, like I said, I don't use Twitter um, but mm -hmm. that's, that's, uh, I know I kind of just vaguely understand how Twitter works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you were, when you were growing up, did you know any blind people? I didn't No, I grew up in a really small town in Nebraska. My graduating class had 36 kids. Wow. So I, yeah, I was the only blind person I knew until I was about 16 when I got a uh, vocational rehabilitation counselor for the first time, mm -hmm. and he was a blind man, and that was really the first blind person I ever met. So, okay. yeah, until then, I didn't know anyone else. Okay. So, uh, did you have any any uh, mentors, sighted or blind, along the way uh, to kind of getting to where you are now? Yeah, definitely. I joined the uh, National Federation of the Blind, particularly the Nebraska Association of Blind Students was kind of the first, you know, group of people that I, I met other blind people um, when I was going to college. And, you know, having some residual vision 
up until that point, you know, seeing other blind people who were in college studying a variety of different things and being very efficient with, you know, use of Braille and technology and, and all this stuff that I didn't really know about. Um, that was really helpful because I think it kind of showed me maybe what was possible. And I don't know that I even knew that I might have been selling myself short in a way, but I, I saw people who were way more efficient at, you know, studying and, and things like that. So from a student perspective, that was huge. And then once I was looking for work, people I had met through the Federation were also people that I had networked with and led to different jobs throughout my career. I know that you participate in some marathons and triathlons. Can we talk about that for a bit? Yeah, let's. Tell me, tell me uh, I guess, when did, you, when did that come about? When did you start or realize that you, that was something you wanted to do? Yeah, so it was about 10 years ago. A friend of mine here in Minneapolis was starting to run, and um, she introduced me to a, a personal trainer who was teaching learn-to-run classes. So it was about, like, running technique and, you know, form and that kind of stuff. And so we got a group of blind people together and we were like, hey, would you teach us, you know, could we do one of your learn to run classes? And uh, she was like, yeah, I mean, I've never taught blind people before, but we'll figure it out. And so she found a few guides and uh, kind of from that class, I started uh, really enjoying running. Mm -hmm. So I did, did that for a couple of years and then... Uh, through working with this personal trainer friend of mine, she then introduced me to triathlon and uh, guided me in my first triathlon in 2016. So I've kind of been definitely hooked to triathlon ever since six years now, I guess. Okay. How many triathlons have you done at this point? Oh, that's a good question. Probably 15 or so of varying oh, wow. distances. So you do a few yeah. a year. Yeah. Yeah. Probably like two or three, depending how long they are, you know? <laughs> okay. I didn't realize it. I thought, I thought it was kind of, there was kind of a standard, I guess sometimes you, yeah, you can do a, a half marathon, half triathlon, I suppose. But what, yes. what are the yeah. types of distances that you, that you participate in? So I've done kind of all distances. I sort of start at a sprint triathlon, which is like a I think it's a 750-meter swim, a 12.5-mile bike, and a 5K run, up to um, Ironman, which is a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike, and a 26—I'm sorry, 20, yeah, 26.2-mile marathon. Um, so mostly these days, I've done um, full Ironman and half Ironman races. I, I kind of like the longer stuff, I've never been a kind of a sprinter type. I could, I can go for a long way. It's just not as fast as sprinting. So my skill set seems to be toward the longer distances. Oh wow, yeah. To me, that's that's just the the more painful stuff. <laughs> I mean, that's also true, but it's its own brand of fun. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, to each his own. And I, I, I think um, I, I, maybe I could do a sprint. Maybe, maybe. Oh, shucks. It's never too late. It's yeah. I know? guess so. I guess so. How do you do the swim <laughs> part of it? Yeah. So I have a guide throughout the whole race. It's the same same person for all three disciplines. So the swim, we have a tether, which is kind of like a stretchy uh, length of bungee cord. And it goes around kind of your upper thigh on myself and my guide. And then the length of bungee goes between us. So really I can tell, I can feel if I'm getting too far away from my guide because I can feel that bungee cord getting tight. Mm. Um, And of course, so that's if I'm going too far one direction and then uh, my guide is on the other side of me as kind of that buffer. So um the guide is kind of doing the sighting of, of the course to make sure we're heading in the right direction. And they'll just give me a couple taps on the shoulder whenever it's time to turn around uh, like one of the turn buoys, uh, depending on kind of the layout of the course. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The swim to me feels like that would be the most difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I basically learned to swim after I signed up for my first one. So um, as an adult swimmer, it's definitely the most challenging. I feel like if you, if you learn to swim as a kid, I, I'm very jealous. I, I just learned how to not drown, but I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing until, until later. So it's definitely a work in progress. I know I kind of jumped to the, the triathlon thing. Let's go back for a second. Can yeah. you tell me what a... What is a day-to-day like for you at work? I work with a lot of different types of people. The folks I work with the most are uh, user experience designers and the engineers or, or developers. We at Target, our accessibility team is integrated into the development process. So a lot of times, even when I first started, we were getting things when they were already built and testing them and then finding a lot of issues, right? Because accessibility wasn't really considered. But now we talk to, you know, the user experience designers who are, you know, making, coming up with the designs of the new features we're going to build. And um, right alongside the designs, we're writing accessibility requirements so that the developers, when they're building it, know exactly what we're going to be testing when that feature is finished. So my day is kind of a combination of making sure that uh, those accessibility requirements are written, uh, you know, testing new features that we're building. I also, we have a, um, an employee resource group at Target dedicated to disability and mental health that I'm a part of. So I do a lot of work with that kind of a little bit outside of my day job, but tied together. So really overseeing uh, the whole kind of development cycle to make sure that accessibility is considered from, you know, like I said, design through development and then testing it to make sure things are accessible before they go out to our guests um, on our apps and the website. Tell me about the assistive technology that you're using day to day. Sure. Yeah. The main thing that I use 
uh, you know, both just to do my job as a blind person and as part of my job as a screen reader. Um, we have Windows machines, so I use JAWS just kind of for my work portion. Um, but we do testing with both, you know, JAWS and NVDA, and then um, also with TalkBack on Android and VoiceOver on iOS. Those are, you know, the main assistive technologies that, that I use. Really the only ones. Uh, some folks on our team use Braille displays, but I unfortunately didn't didn't learn Braille until I was an adult, so I'm not super fast at reading it. So screen reader is really my main tool. Okay. Are there any other interesting assistive technology or any other tech that you use in everyday life you find particularly useful? I, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I'm pretty addicted to my iPhone, but uh, that's, uh-huh. that's a me problem. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think screen readers are, are kind of the main one. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything awesome other than that. <laughs> okay. All right. That's all right. Now, with your type of uh, work that you're doing, do you feel like you're on an equal playing field with your sighted peers? Do you have other sighted peers, or is everyone on the team blind and legally blind? No. So it's um, there are a few of us who are blind, but the majority of the team is sighted. And yeah, I do feel like I am an equal part of the team. I, you know, we all kind of bring our own uh, knowledge and backgrounds, and I think. You know, for me, I have to collaborate with some of my peers to test sort of the more visual aspects of things like double checking color contrast and things like that. But at the same time, you know, I also have sighted peers who are like, hey, can you double check this with a screen reader to make sure what I think is happening is correct? So I think it's a very, you know, on par sort of situation. And I think... Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing is, like, I've been there for 11 years, so I have a lot of sort of institutional knowledge. I have a lot of experiences that I can bring to the table in terms of, you know, even teaching newer folks that are on the team. So I think, you know, finding that thing that you can kind of be an expert in, um, maybe beyond your core job duties, so that, you know, you kind of offset any feelings, if there are any, of having to ask for assistance on, you know, like I said, double checking something that's visual. Do you use a cane or a guide dog? Uh, I'm a cane user. All right. Ever thought about getting a guide dog? No, I, I'm not a dog person in general. So, um, you know, I, I definitely see times where, where they would be super useful. Um, but you know, that's just not just not my style. I've been, you know, like I said, using a cane since uh, college. So um, yeah. served yeah. me pretty well so far. And, you know, I can't remember. I was in Minneapolis. Um, where I, That's where I went to get my training, Blind Incorporated. And I, mm-hmm. I mostly remember seeing cane users in Minneapolis. So I don't know. Is, is it maybe just too cold uh, most of the year for, you know, <laughs> you don't want to be walking around with a dog when it's zero degrees out half the year? I mean, I don't want to be walking around when it's zero degrees half the year. But uh, no, I mean, I think um, 
I know a couple of guide dog users here. So, um, you know, uh, they're doing it somehow. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Putting on it's yeah. It's got to be a, an extra layer for sure because of the weather and the, you know, snow and ice and all that with their their paws and stuff. But um, yeah, people are definitely making it work. So aside from the triathlons, what else are you doing for for fun? What other kind of hobbies do you have? I really enjoy cooking. Um, so that's that's fun. I like making new things. Like I said earlier, I'm a big sports fan, so I this is my season. Football season is my favorite. Play play fantasy football, and you can probably find me watching a game on a Saturday or Sunday this time of year. Awesome. Any other advice or or just anything in general you want to share for other blind visually impaired people? Yeah, I mean, I would say. I'm gonna gonna go back to the networking piece just because I've gotten every, literally every one of my jobs um, as an adult through networking, uh, through knowing someone. I I'd love to quote uh, some stat, but I don't have one off the top of my head. But I knew mm-hmm. I do know that you know a lot of jobs, you know, might be posted, but a lot of them are. You know, you hear that it, it's not about what you know, but it's about who you know. And I think that that can be really true um, a lot of times. And I think that, you know, don't discount networking with other blind people um, because, you know, there's probably someone that is in the career field that you're wanting to go into that you can gain a lot of knowledge from and then just networking in general, you know, in the areas that you're interested in, if you can. And um, I think for me, at least, it's proven really, really helpful. What do you think of the Android talk? You said it was called TalkBack? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do, is, that, is that pretty good relative to iOS uh, voiceover so and, and JAWS? I mean, it's gotten better. It still drives me crazy. Like I use it because I have to, <laughs> you know, I have to use it for testing, but I mean, I've gotten so used to iOS and voiceover that, you know, it, I think it's just a, a matter of me being used to it. There are, there are definitely blind people who are total Android people. Um, and it, it has improved a lot, especially over the past three or four years. Um, it's definitely a viable option, but, um, you know, I think it's still, if you use things like braille screen input or braille displays, I would say iOS is probably still a little bit ahead. Um, but you know, it's an option for sure. iOS is ahead of, of jaws of freedom scientific. Uh, no, I've talked back on Android. Sorry. I'm just mobile specific there. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Fair enough. It's yeah. I, I my impression is, I mean, Jaws has been around the longest. Yeah, I, I mean, think. if you're talking um, like a computer, for sure, I think Jaws is still still the best at that. Um, NVDA, NVDA on Windows is making a push for sure, especially outside of the U.S. You know, because it's free, uh, which is a good price. Um, oh yeah, I, I didn't know it was free. Yeah, yeah. I may have to check that right. out. So can you, would you use, you wouldn't use NVDA on a Mac? No. So the only 
uh, screener you can use on a Mac is VoiceOver. Um, but yeah, on Windows, you've got JAWS and NVDA are kind of the two top top ones. That's wild. How do they make it free? Uh, it's open source. There's just two guys, two blind guys who started developing it. And so you can, you know, when you download it, you can donate to the project. But, um, but yeah, so that, I mean, it's not like a company like Freedom Scientific is. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I, um, computers are not my thing. Mm -hmm. I sort of understand what you mean when you say open source, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but not really. <laughs> yeah, like, so basically people can write code and contribute to the product, like to the screen reader. Right, um, but then does it have, not... do, they, do they send that to those two guys and then they kind of, uh, you know, have to review it and approve it to then be added? Or does it automatically just get, like, no, just no, add no. something? It would, yeah, it would be reviewed and, and tested and all of that. But since it's not, like, a business, so, like, Freedom Scientific is a business and they're selling you a license to JAWS, but this, um, with NVDA, it's, you know, it's just a... Uh, I guess different model, right? They're not making it for profit necessarily. Um, whereas, like Freedom Scientific, their all their code is you know secret and proprietary and all that. Whereas NVDA being open means you can look at it all and and contribute to it if if you're so inclined. So, so when's your next triathlon? You know, I don't have anything on the calendar yet, um, but I think I'm going to do another Ironman in uh, October of next year. So, yeah. Are you, are you training constantly or do you? Yeah, I mean, you try to keep up a base level of fitness and then, mm -hmm. you know, going into a race, then you can kind of ramp it up for, you know, three or four months because you, you can't. You know, you can't stay at that high level all the time, but you don't mm -hmm. want to start from scratch either, <laughs> you know, so. So what do you do to maintain a base level in your, in what you consider a base level of fitness? Yeah, it would be probably six to eight hours a week, probably three, three bike workouts, four runs and hopefully two or three swims. So somewhere in there, you have to do two, two a day. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Often. Yeah. And that's base level of fitness. Yeah. I mean, especially for, you know, the long stuff and, you know, I picked a sport that is, that has three sports. So I don't know what that says about my level of intelligence, but, um, <laughs> but you know, if you were, if you were just doing running races, right. Like, you wouldn't have to do, you know, two a days and things like that. But with, you know, with keeping all three kind of at a baseline, it is it's definitely several days a week uh, if you're on point that you're doing two workouts a day. So, so. on a on a two a day two a day workout day, what mm -hmm. what is what would you do? Usually I would swim and run on the same day. So I'd hopefully swim in the morning 
and then run like either, you know, over lunch or after work. Um, but a lot of it is, a lot of it, especially with long course racing is low intensity, right? So you're not trying to, you know, go as fast as possible all the time because it's a, it's an aerobic event. You're trying to keep a fairly low heart rate. So a lot of the training is, you know, just base, you know, base miles. So you're not taxing yourself, but you are keeping your, you know, heart and lungs and legs in shape. Okay. So how, what kind of distance would you swim and what time on a train, like for training and, and then same for the run? Swim sessions about an hour. So it'd be anywhere from like, I don't know, uh, 2000 to 2,600 yards. And then running during the week, probably range anywhere from, you know, a 35 minute run up to an hour, kind of depending sort of fluctuates but on average and then bike rides so two during the week say tuesday thursday those would be anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half each and then on the weekend you typically do a longer ride so a base level anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours and then a long run base level would be anywhere from like an hour to maybe two hours Okay. Are you always doing these with your, with, with the sighted guide? No, I mean, scheduling guides is hard, especially around work schedules. Um, so I do a lot of training indoors, particularly, you know, swimming in a pool, a lot of, uh, indoor bike sessions. Um, I try to get out for my long run on the weekend, um, outside with a guide and occasionally I'll get one, uh, during the week, but, um, you know, scheduling being what it is. And then winter in Minnesota, um, there's a lot of, a lot of indoor training, but I definitely take any opportunity I can to get outside. So you're running on a treadmill. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, I I mean, bike, bike is, uh, is probably not an issue, Yeah, but, but I admit, so when you go to and swim, Mm-hmm. Are you swimming and there's uh like you're swimming in a lane and yes. you're, yep. and you, yep. you can kind of tell, uh, you're, 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 you're kind of, I don't know, you're touching the, uh, I don't know what to call it, but the, yeah, like the lane rope, um, right, like, yeah. kind of using, using that as, you know, the guide. Right. And then you can kind of, I don't know, like, I feel like I get an idea of, my pace and sort of um have an idea of when i'm getting close to the end you know mm-hmm. <laughs> i need to turn around um but yeah mostly i just kind of touch the the lane rope every couple of strokes to make sure i'm not just you know drifting across the whole lane <laughs> and all mm-hmm. of that yeah. but yep. yeah it, it works out pretty well yeah for running on a treadmill is there anything you're doing are you tethering to the treadmill no i don't um i know some people do um but i've just yeah i kind of um so in my particular model like i have it has some controls kind of up in the front in the center and so i can run pretty you know pretty normal like form and kind of tap one of my hands 
against the front of it to make sure that I'm staying centered. I don't, mm. I don't know how to describe that well, but, <laughs> but you know, like when you run, you're using, using your arms, right? Sure. And so I can just kind of tap that center, uh, like console that's on my machine anyway. And so it, just that little bit of, you know, tactile feedback that I'm, I'm not drifting to one side yeah. or the other. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. As soon as you, as soon as you touch, you know, touch it, you're, you know exactly where you are yep. relative to exactly. everything else. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to get into marathons or, or especially not iron, <laughs> iron ultra marathons and anything like that. It's, it requires a level, level of dedication that few people have, I think. So. That, yeah, that is true. It is, um, it is a lot of time, especially the, the longer distance, but, um, you know, I think with a lot of things, like it's, it's the community and the people, um, is half, half the fun, right? Um, Mm-hmm. Having a guide, like, I get a race with a buddy, and I feel like it's a bit of a cheat code. Like, everyone else is out there by themselves. I at least got somebody to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, during the race, are you really chatting that much? Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's long, right? So you're not, again, you're <laughs> not uh, crushing yourself because you're out there for 15 hours. Um, so you wow. can't sprint that. Uh, obviously, you know, you're not communicating in the swim, but you're riding a tandem bike. So, hey, chat about all kinds of stuff. You know, someone's life story. You got to save up the stories for race day. Yeah. yeah. Something. <laughs> you must be, you have like energy drinks or energy food that you, you know, can kind of eat quickly while you're on your, I mean, 15 hours is a heck of a long time. Um, yeah, it is. I joke that the bike portion is like a rolling buffet um, because okay. you definitely like nutrition is a huge part of it, you know, just to fuel yourself for going that long. And then it's a lot easier for your body to digest things when you're riding a bike than it is running. So it's kind of a, a key time to eat. Um, yeah. People eat all kinds of stuff. I don't necessarily have uh, an iron stomach like some people, but yeah, a lot of Gatorade, a lot of, um, oh, I don't know, I have, like, kind of fig bars or, like, fig newtons or, like, um, I've eaten, you know, potato chips. They have, like, these kind of, like, gummy things that are high-carb and have caffeine. So it's just a little bit of, kind of carry a little bit of everything because you don't know you know, what's going to sound good at, at any given point in time. Uh, mm-hmm. Peanut butter and jelly is my go-to also on uh, during the bike ride. Good peanut butter and jelly is uh, a solid choice as well. Yeah, I guess that because it's swim, bike, run, right? Is it yes. always that order? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes sense. You know, you, you, you spend a few hours swimming and then, mm-hmm. you, and then you spend a few hours biking and then you don't eat anything. And what, so the, yeah, the whole time you're on the bike, it's like, yeah, that's your yeah. time to eat and, and kind of get calories exactly. back in. And then, and then you finish mm-hmm. out with a run and you just, you just run it. Yep. Cool. You got it. I want to want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that is completely fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it is a lot. Um, but like I said, it's 
it's a really cool community. I think the, you know, athletes with disabilities and like the running community and, and triathlon. Um, I don't know. It's just like, even if there are multiple people, you know, doing a race, there's not a ton of us that do it. It's growing, but it's still pretty small. I mean, like triathlon is small in general. And then you add in disability to it. It's not a huge field, but everyone is super supportive of each other. And it's just a really cool vibe. It does help on those days when you don't want to get up and go to the pool or, or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. So is there a specific section that's disability triathletes? within within the race or do you you all race together i thought yes no you do um there's a physically challenged division in a lot of larger races like ironman half ironman that kind of thing but you i mean you're racing the same course you have the same time limits you know it's it's just a matter of a lot of the races are done by age groups so you're kind of divided up that way in terms of, you know, placing and stuff. And so there's a kind of an open category for athletes with disabilities, but it's other than having its own category, like it's, again, same, same cutoff time, same course, all of that race at the same time. I hope we can all learn something from my conversation with Randy today. I know for myself, the power of networking is so critical as we've seen time and time again. And if you're interested in becoming a triathlete, lack of sight won't be what holds you back. I hope you come back to hear more inspiring stories from other blind and visually impaired people. Music today is provided by Matthew Whitaker. And thanks for listening.